Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, please welcome Daniel McQueen. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm very well, thanks, Alex. How about yourself? Doing good. We are so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? Sure. So I'm from uh, Canada, born and raised in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Played lots of sports, soccer, hockey, volleyball, softball, skiing. I played everything growing up. Uh, and eventually really enjoyed traveling. So eventually ended up moving away abroad for a master's degree in Sweden, which uh, kind of started off my foray in, in, in Europe. So it was quite a, quite a traveler to begin with and uh, led me to London where actually eventually everything kind of happened and came to the fruition. Growing up in Canada, did you prefer more of like the summer sports versus the winter sports? Because, you know, people think Canada, oh, it snows, oh, it's cold all the time. But with the sports that you mentioned, it's kind of that variety of weather outcomes. Did you have a preference of which one you preferred more playing? Yeah, I prefer the winter ones, to be honest. I preferred ice hockey, skiing. Um, I loved growing up playing hockey. I played hockey every day. Uh, was ice hockey was playing street hockey in the streets like with our neighbors and big battles big tournaments I was pretty good at stick hockey in fact and uh yeah winter I'd say winter I'd say with hockey did you have any athlete that was kind of an influence on you when it comes to hockey well I loved them all like I was a big uh senator Ottawa Senators fan because I grew up in Ottawa obviously and like so I had a only recently got over my hatred of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I'm now officially <laughs> over that. It was a bit disheartening to see them losing the playoffs this year, but it was, uh, I just loved anyone with a bit of flash, a bit of flair. I loved Fedorov. I loved, uh, Iserman. I loved these, like, Clutch Hall of Fame players that showed up in the playoffs and really earned it their right to be, uh, hosting the Stanley Cup. So it was pretty cool to see that. I was been in for- or fortunate enough to finally see a Stanley Cup for my Blues as I'm here in Missouri. And it was just Blues all year. But it's fun to see the rivalries between Canada and USA when it comes to hockey. It's just every time you watch those games, it's like you are going to get some action out of it. When you were playing hockey, what did it teach you about yourself? Did you learn anything about yourself through it? You know, I think I learned a lot, not specifically through hockey, but like all sports I played was that like you learn trial and error through hockey. Like you learn how to fail through sports. Mm-hmm. And by failure, I mean like just losing, like losing the game. Yep. 7-5, one nothing, 12-1. Like you lose and you lose and it's kind of like, well, that that sucked. I don't want to repeat that feeling again. So let's, how can I avoid that? Well, you 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 stop doing this move because they really read, the, the defense would read that well. So like you, you kind of adapt and identify these failures and pitfalls. Sports for me has been that that trial and error process. And like that's how I've learned through life is just by playing sports and winning and losing. And like a loss or failure is never really like it. It's a learning experience, learning opportunity that makes sense. Is that something that you use today when you're doing any projects or anything that you're doing in your journey, in your career, where it's trial and error or learning from the challenges that you are facing? 100%. Like, I fall down seven times, get up eight kind of vibe. Like, I'm, I've am i failed so many times that I, you know, every failure is a closer step to success. And I can't, well, don't do it that way again. Don't do it that way next time. Like, you know that's off the list. Like, it's just like you're refining your streamline, you're improving your process. But, like, failure is a big part of this. And that's how I learned a lot through that, through sports. That makes sense. 
Growing up, did you have anyone that was a big motivator for you? Um, I think just seeing athletes perform and like succeed and then do well and that motivated me. No one specifically that really springs to mind as a real motivator. Uh, that being said, since all this medical stuff's happened, I've got a few motivators that motivators that I've kind of blocked to on, on uh, YouTube and whatnot. And those kind of helped me get through the dark days and reframe my, my adversity and my, my strife in terms of a way that's kind of healthy and motivating. So it's, uh, that's what I really had growing up and it's been effort and cultivate as we go forwards. Sometimes we're asked that fun question growing up. What is that dream job that we want? When you were growing up, what was that dream job that you were wanting? Oh, I was convinced I was going to play pro hockey or something to that effect. But like, I didn't really have anything beyond that of like a dream job. Kind of dream of playing hockey for a while, but you know, yeah. When puberty kind of hit and then you shoot up to like six four, I kind of realized, oh, maybe that's not going to happen, Dan. So you got to reframe your vibes here. But uh, I've always enjoyed engaging people and helping people. So now, like, I really, I did this quiz from this book called Sparked. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book called Sparked. Mm-mm. So it's like a book that you do this test to see like what your personality aligns with in terms of what your values are and what you can add to the world in terms of like a vocational endeavor. Mm-hmm. And mine was very much around coaching, very much around um, offering perspective, like uh, training, teaching, and that kind of vibe. So I was kind of gravitated towards that. And now my new career as a speaker, that kind of aligns quite well with that. So I've really kind of aligned myself with that kind of values. And now it's like that aligns perfectly with what I want to do and how I want to show up with people and myself. So teaching and, and offering perspective is really a big part of my vibe. And that's something that I think that you know, is as cheesy as it sounds like what my purpose is in life is to kind of do that, to kind of shed some light and to pull back the drapes and show you what's behind the the curtain here. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, it's not like this. It's like this. Look back here, look behind the curtain. It's pretty expecting interesting this way, right? It's quite uh, something I've really thrived on and really, and really value these days. So it's been quite cool to see. Especially when you talk about, going behind the curtains it really shows that person even more and said of a lot of people nowadays just want to showcase the surface but you really get to know the person within and kind of like going behind the curtain and being able to share the struggles the challenges kind of the pauses that they've experienced to show that we're all not perfect but we all can learn from each other from our experiences and our stories yeah for sure like i was uh out with a buddy last or two weeks ago and we we're talking about like Instagram and just how fake and show offy that can be. And I was like, I told my buddy Ed, like, yeah, man, I got a post on my Instagram that's like a picture of like burnt bacon to a crisp, like to a crisp, like, <laughs> like more, like I left it in the oven for like an hour. I kind of forgot about it. And like I came back and the, and the bacon was mortified. I wanted crispy bacon. I was past the point of crispy bacon. But you know what I told him? I'm like, Eddie, you can always buy more bacon. But like, that's my that's my mess up here. What's yours? Like, your your feed's all curated and stuff. Like, hey man, I make mistakes. Like, I'm not, I'm not afraid to own those mistakes. Like, I fail all the time now. Like, fall down seven, get up eight. But it's like the process of going through that journey is what makes me better and like makes me improve. Like, you know, show me your burnt bake, but like I know you do that stuff too. But like, I'm just okay to show it off and like, hey, this is a big fail for me. Look at this. This is a bad mistake. Whoops, won't do that again. 
But that's why I learned is through trial and error. I just dove and open taught, if that makes sense. You talked about the traveling abroad during your education, college experience. When you were going to college, what was that path you were going on? Uh, I was doing politics and business. I studied at University of Victoria on Vancouver Island, which is a gorgeous spot. Uh, I can't say I studied. I was more of a... I passed, I got my degrees, I got a master's degree, as a matter of fact, but like I wasn't the most studious student. I kind of did what I needed to do to get by. And it was there for the lifestyle vibe, if that makes sense. Like I was enjoying mm-hmm. the friends, the camaraderie, the, the the surf trips, the skimboarding events, the parties, the the vibe that was university and what a cool vibe that was. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Is there a memorable moment from the lifestyle aspect um, that you enjoyed in college? Yeah, just like we used to wake up early mornings and do skimboarding before class. Well, we'd wake up and skimboard in the day sometimes. <laughs> the class would be great. But I remember just going down to the beach, like middle of winter, like really calm, peaceful, like like glass water. We could go skimboard and just rip it down in Arbutus Cove with some friends and just really enjoyed that. Massive wipeouts because sometimes that board gets stuck on the sand, right? And you go down pretty hard big tree fall hard kind of vibe but like it was uh some great memories and just like enjoying life just laughing and having fun and victoria is a wonderful spot and really a picturesque place to be there with nature and and whatnot it was quite cool i really enjoyed that i definitely did not have that um fun of experience with college i couldn't go skimboarding in the middle of the country but i am jealous that you were able to do that because that that would be so much fun just to wake up enjoy the nature and then go to class but it sounded like that kind of fun the lifestyle aspect was the enjoyable part and a lot of people get their own fun in different ways when it comes to college some people do the education aspect some people like the kind of the lifestyle the extracurricular activities in a way yeah i mean like i was really good at like, I got good grades in university, to be honest. Like, for the amount of study, like, shockingly good grades. <laughs> like, I think, like, they ain't like these B pluses, like, but, like, I would I would not buy, I would not go to class, not buy a textbook, and, like, I buy a textbook. Week before the exam, just cram, study the whole time, and then do the exam, hand it in, be like, cool, see you later. Like, I got a good system down to, like, get through the schooling system without having to, like, dedicate my whole life to studying, which was kind of identified, like, great. I mean, now it's like, I mean, what's a university degree? It's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of value in that, but not a lot of it comes from the school and the classroom, I think. Like, I could do papers, I could argue my points. I read quite a lot, like, I read enough to get by, enough to, like, pass my papers, but, like, I wasn't the most up-to-date in terms of this stuff, but I found a way to get through it, and, like, you find a way to make it work. I delivered on my, like, deadlines and my deliverables. Um, Sometimes, you know, a few days late, but, like, I'd always get it done and get it finished, which was cool. You talked about earlier in the interview that going to London kind of changed your life. Talk about that beginning aspect and leading up to the big moment for you. Yeah, so I moved to Sweden to do a master's in 2010. I figured I'd do a master's in Sweden because I got a university, uh, a European passport. And university is free in Sweden if you have a university, like a uh, European passport. So I figured let's do that in Sweden because that seems a lot better than studying in like Burnaby or Coquitlam for like a master's for 25 degree, 25 grand. So I did that, moved to Sweden, enjoyed it, really enjoyed myself there. Uh, 
you know, spend a ton of money on booze, learn a lot of life lessons living abroad in a foreign country where the language is not English. But really enjoyed that there. And then when that was winding down, I figured, you know, let's keep this ride going. I applied for some jobs in Sweden and Denmark, and language is proving to be an issue there. I, I wasn't able to speak Swedish or Danish. Where can I go where that's not going to be a barrier? So I moved to London. Moved to London, lived on a friend's floor for three, four months, showed her Heidi Klassen. And uh, eventually got my job at a tech job, uh, a company called Hootsuite. I worked in the support team and then built my way up to uh, professional services after a little while. Um, but I wanted to keep the inventory going there and just enjoy being in Europe. It was quite fun, quite different, quite unique. Uh, so that's why I kind of continued on to Europe and, and did that. What was something that kind of you enjoyed culture-wise in London? Sometimes we find that, well, we can't get it to where we are from, but we get into this world, this atmosphere, and we're like just amazed by the culture aspect. Talking about this yesterday with my family, the roast. Sunday roast in London is one of my favorite things about the London culture is just going to the pub, you know, around three o'clock, like an like a early dinner, early afternoon dinner. The fire's going, there's pets in there, you get like a nice glass of wine or a nice beer and you got this lovely dinner. It's like a roast beef or a pork belly that's really crispy and just goose fat fried potatoes, green salad, like just it's a whole vibe and, and that's something that I really do think the English do very well and I haven't found anywhere in, in Canada that does anywhere a close to job as that. But the, the pub vibe was very much my vibe and the roast vibe was very much my vibe as well. So I enjoyed that. When did the medical aspect come into play for you? Yeah, so I started having headaches in uh, 2014, June of 2014. Uh, to the point where like I went to a trip to Berlin with my family a few weeks before. And I remember like coming back to uh, back to Vancouver and I was just like had to sit down on a bench because my head was hurting so much. I was like, yeah, were you guys like hurting from the trip? I was like, we didn't really drink that heavily, but that's well, not true. We didn't drink that heavily the night before we left. But I was feeling like just haggard and just, just debilitated entirely. And so I was having these headaches that were getting persistently worse. And I went to A&E twice. A&E is accident and emergency in the UK. Mm-hmm. They thought it was vertigo and they sent me home. But they told me on the way out on the second visit, the headaches were to continue. I could also get my eyes checked in an optometrist. So I decided, you know what? These headaches are persisting. They're not going away. They're getting bad. I'm taking painkillers like candy for them. Went down to the optician and he was in the middle of the exam with me and he stops the exam midway through and he excuses himself in the room, which is not a casual move, right? And he kind of comes back in five minutes later with a sealed envelope and he tells me, Dan, you need to go directly to Moorfield's hospital. So I was like, okay, this is kind of serious. So I didn't exactly go directly to the hospital. I kind of stopped at home first to grab a book, a Jack Reacher book by Lee Child, because I really liked his book, and I wanted him to read while I was waiting for the, the medical doctors to look at me over. A bite to eat and a phone charger, and they uh, they kind of ran the same test and escalated me to Charing Cross Hospital. It kind of escalated quickly. It turns out I had a dangerous buildup of pressure in my brain caused from a non-cancerous cyst in my head. It turns out I required emergency brain surgery tomorrow. Turns out my world's about to change altogether. So this went zero to 60 for me in about, I don't know. I went to the hospital the day before, I think, then 
16 hours I was having surgery. So it went really quickly. And then on the operating table, I don't want to get too forehead for you, Alex, but like my mom was coming to London. She was flying to London. I was on the operating table and then something went horribly wrong. I think the cyst burst when they operated on me. So I had a brain hemorrhage on the table. And my mom lands and finds I'm in critical condition. Hmm. I was in a coma for four weeks. I was in and out of consciousness for months after this. Things were dicey, touch and go. When all was said and done, I was learning how to walk, talk, and smile again. So I woke up in the hospital room months later. Hearing the beeping noise, the heart rate monitors going off. It's like, well, what happened? What happened? Being told, like, hey, Dan, you had a brain hammer during the hospital. You're in a coma, but now you can, now you're out of the coma, but like, we're still trying to get you going here. And like, it was zero to 60 in, in, in a second, in less than a second. It was just like flattened, floor line. It was horrible. Was it hard knowing that you had to basically start from square one and regain the walking, the speaking, and all that? Where where you are at your age when you were going through that? Yeah, it was super difficult. They asked me what was the most difficult thing in the hospital, and I was in a wheelchair at this stage, so I said physical, no doubt. But like, physical's tough. Don't get me wrong. I mean, wheelchair sucks, but like that was nothing compared to the mental game. Mm-hmm. The physical, the social, I mean, like, my social muscles were, like, pretty finely tuned, I'd say, before this. I was quite a good, uh, soft-skilled person. And after this, I would just, like, blunder into stuff and say things that were off-piste. And and just, you did that, that muscle is so delicate, you have to flex. When you're in the hospital, too, you're not really around a lot of people, so you don't really have a chance to, like, kind of interact and, and test out your social muscles. That's by far the most difficult part of this. Yeah, I was super frustrated and like getting me taken away. Like I couldn't speak when I got to the hospital, right? Or when I first got to the coma. So I'm pointing my mom and dad and they're like, hey, I'm trying to communicate. I can't talk. And they go, give me a pen and paper. I write down my pen and paper. I go, get me out of here. And I pass to my brother and I go, Cam, make it happen, bud. I'm like signaling to him. Let's go. What do you want me to do, man? Like a couple years later, he goes, What do you want me to do? You're hooked up to 13 tubes and hoses. Your one eye is wonky as hell. We're not going anywhere, bud. Like you're you're here for a while. But I saw this and I'm like, this looks shockingly expensive. We gotta get out of here where we still can. Uh needless to say, we didn't escape um as I requested, but it was uh it was kind of a shock to the system, right? Like it was zero to sixty, like a healthy active guy one day. The next day I'm in a coma. The next day I wake up and I'm like, I can't talk. I can't walk. I can't smile. Like I am, I am nose to nuts, like just out of, out of sorts, man. It was pretty bad. Going through all of that. Did did you ever think about wanting to go back home, be closer to family instead of being in a different country completely away from them? Because your family came in and we're with you, but did that kind of change your mindset of maybe I'm done with being in London and I'm ready to go back home? Yeah, no, for me, I looked at it from a different perspective. It was like, I don't want to go out on these terms. I want to go out on my terms. So I stuck mm-hmm. it out and made my, my make it work there for a couple of years. I moved back last autumn. Um, I kind of looked at it like, look, I'm not leaving you because I'm not leaving London because it's told me I need to leave. I'm leaving London because I want to leave London. Mm-hmm. Lockdown made me leave London because it was like quite isolating to be over there, quite strict lockdown. Um, but I just figured, you know what? I want to make myself back up here in London and make it happen. Like, mom and dad came over from Vancouver, which helped tremendously. I had a big support group of my friends in Vancouver and also from London. 
So it was quite good to have that and super key. Like that helped me so much. I had a lot of help to get back from that today. Right. And like, I think without that, I wouldn't have been able to stay in London as long as I did, but I was hell bent on making it work in London to come back on my terms. And I think I did that. So I was quite happy with that. When you were, people are asking about what the conditions you've gone through, was it hard to be able to share what you did know that happened? Or was this an opportunity to really share your story and be open and kind of really tell people, this is the challenges I've been facing. I'm starting over in some parts of my daily living and things like that. Uh, I think I've always been more so sharing about it now recently because I'm trying to be going as a speaker and a podcaster. But initially, I didn't really spread it around too wide, but people would hear rumblings about what happened in your story. Like, I'm walking around with an eye patch and a cane for a while. I'm not exactly a subtle dude. Like, mm-hmm. what happened to Dan? Why is this guy walking around like this? And I have people come to me like, hey, Dan, I really noticed, like, you're progressing a lot. And I want to say, like, I really admire how much you're trying to improve. And I'm like, well, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. But, like, wouldn't you want to improve? Like, did you know me before the brain injury? They go, no. We just saw so you after the brain injury, but, like, you know, you were walking with a cane first and an eye patch first. Now those are both gone. Like you progressed and, and developed from this stage. And like that meant a lot to me to hear that. Cause like it was showing that I was trying and like, I always pride myself growing up as someone who really didn't show that I tried too hard. Mm-hmm. I was wanting to be kind of like the naturally gifted social person or sports person. I wanted to show that I was just like naturally good at this, but I tried really hard under the surface. After the brain injury, nothing came easy. Nothing was easy at all. It was all, difficult and I was a lot of hard edges that I ran into and sharp corners and and I'd bugger it up and then muck it up and well don't do it that way again but like I kept going and like I kept grinding because I can do this I can do this that, that expression fall down seven times get up eight like I've probably fallen down a thousand times going up a thousand one like it's like constant failure and like and then losing and like that failure of loss is so important because when you feel that failure of loss it's like well don't feel that again how can I avoid that? And that's kind of what drove me to get back to being better than yesterday and get myself off the map. Like it's very much an intentional process and very much uh, a feeling of not wanting to go down that road again. Has this resulted in more checkups with doctors and really being able to take on those check-ins to make sure that everything is progressing to where you are today? Well, truth be told, I'm kind of done a lot with the major stuff with the doctors. I'm supposed to go in with an MRI once a year now, trying to get that unhooked in the back end. But I did some tests maybe two months ago at a brain injury clinic in Surrey, BC, which is quite a like world-renowned clinic. Uh, one of the best ones in the world, actually. They had some people come over from the UK to test some sportsmen who had a brain injury. And they ran some tests on me to see like how my brain was after the two traumatic brain injuries I had. And the results came back as, well, to me, they were shocking the average, which is a brain injury survivor. That's a good sign because it means your brain's recovered. And like, it, there's no, they can't tell you how to brain injury down, which is great. Mm-hmm. That was expecting, you know, Dan, you recovered so well. You've done so much here. Like you must be gifted in some areas. There must be some spikes in some areas, but no shocking the average across the board, which tells me the reason why I've been able to call him back up to where I'm at today is because I've been so focused on my mindset and my perspective like i've leaned into this with everything i've got that i've been able to ride this wave down kind of shows you that like my perspective and my my success is not due to any thing that's gifted or like any skills that i've got but just through hard work and graft and like 
that's kind of empowering in the sense of like, if I can do it, why can't you? And like, there's nothing special about me. I've just been able to do this through hard work and focus. And like, it kind of helped me refocus for my speaking stuff. Like, you know, that helped, it helps you reframe this because everyone's like, well, I don't know if I could get through that. Like, well, why can't you? Like, I'm not gifted. Look at these results. There's, they're shocking the average. And that was kind of cool to see that because it just kind of allowed me to know that like, hey, it's through trial and error, through work and through graph that you've been able to get to where you're at today. Have you noticed now anything that you did prior to the injury that you're able to do? Or have you been able to find new things that you've enjoyed doing now? Yeah, so before the injury, I was quite sporty. I used to play soccer, hockey, volleyball, softball, like all the sports, right? I can't really play sports like that now, especially like uh, I've still got double vision, which means like ball sports are pretty much a no-go. Uh, hockey, I try playing hockey again. That's pretty difficult to stick handle with two pucks. Um, but I swim a lot now. I've kind of transitioned to swimming, and I love swimming now because there's no traffic, no outside influence, no 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 music, no nothing except those pesky backstrokers. <laughs> but like, you know, that's a minor consideration. Those pesky backstrokers get a bit up your your sleeve, but like, there's no outside influence. There's a chance for you to be alone with your thoughts, which is very rare this day and age. Like, you've always got music or traffic or people or like there's congestion or something that's driving your attention, but in the pool. I've got a lap counter, which counts your laps mm-hmm. and just focus on my breath. So it's quite good. I'll untangle stuff in my mind. Um, for instance, I was in the pool but two days ago and I came with the idea, well, let's ask for a referral from a, from a former client from a speaking gig. Did. Like, let, let's position them this way because that's a great way to get a referral and a testimonial this perspective. And like you untangle that in the pool because there's no outside influence for your attention. It's just your breath. And into your body, which is fantastic. So I've transitioned that to like swimming away from other sports. I, you know, I miss the sports element a little bit, like the, the team camaraderie and stuff like that. But it's um, a good outlet for activity and for, for physical burn. It's kind of fun to hear that the water has been an important aspect of your life where going in college and doing those activities on the beach and things like that too bringing it to where you are, where you're swimming in a pool. Water has been something that has played a big part in your growth and your journey and something that kind of keeps you excited. Is that something that you see that it's going to stay long-term? You're always going to find that the water is like your home in a way. Yeah, I think the water is a big part of my vibe. Like I really enjoy the water here in Vancouver on the coast, obviously. Um, but also in the town, like when I lived in London, I used to go for walks along the Thames a lot, which is like a very closest to like waterfront you'll get in 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 London is the Thames, and it's quite gross water, but it's it's free flowing water. It's quite a big body of water, and it flows through the city, which is quite cool. I used to always go for walks along the Thames because I loved having that water access to water there. But in Vancouver, it's quite nice to have the water here. Um, but I think it's a big part of my vibe is the water. I really enjoy that. It's kind of peaceful. To know that you're, it kind of gives you some perspective as how big you are in the world. And like, hey man, mm-hmm. you're not that special, you're not that important. You're a small speck of dust in this like big, vast ocean. Look at how big this is. So I like, I think water is quite healing for me. And so then I started out early and early days in rehab. Like I first got in the pool at rehab because I couldn't walk, right? So I started walking underwater in the, in the train center in the pool in the hospital. And we go down there and I would, you know, be super excited to go in the water because that was an area where I could like, I could walk normally because I could support my body weight in the pool. 
where I couldn't do it on, on the land, right? So it's quite nice to have that in a big part of my vibe. So the water is quite healing for me and I really enjoy it. Uh, and now I've kind of transitioned that, like I'll do showers and I'll end the shower cold. So like I'll, I'll kind of embrace all elements of like making the water kind of work for me. So the cold shower is quite an abrasive move initially, but like now I am addicted to it. I really crave it. I really need that that jump at the end of the shower to kind of sign off my shower for that and go forward with that. But it's quite quite healing and quite important to my vibe. So good that you picked up on it. Earlier you mentioned that you currently are in the speaking world. When you're speaking, what's the big message you would like to share with listeners? Do you have that goal that you're hoping that they learn or get out of it or able to adapt and utilize in their lives? Yeah, I think the, the big, I've got a through line through my talk and it's an Epictetus through line who's an OG Stoic philosopher. And that is, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. I'll say it again. Yep. It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. And that's my whole bloody vibe is this thing is like, look, control the controllables. Like, hey man, you can't control what happened to you, but how you control how you react to it. And that's the through line I want to take through my talk. I show various examples about how I've utilized this to like control my mindset and my vibe and allow people to kind of navigate this little difficult part because you can't control a lot of stuff that happens in life, but you can control how you react to it. Mm-hmm. And that's almost, that's more important in my, in my view because nothing is good or bad. It's what you think about that matters. That was nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it. So I think Shakespeare said that that's a, that's a, that's a spray and pray kind of hope there, but like it, it's all, Part of this process of like stoic philosophy and stuff like that. So that makes sense. Is there a speaking event that is a goal opportunity for you? TED TEDx is what I want to do. Um, I've got a TED talk ready to go. I've been doing it uh, for smaller crowds. And within the time frame, I'm trying to get that on stage. Hopefully this year, if I can, but I'm not I'm not like going to like, I've got an idea of how I want it to go, and it's going to involve visuals, it's going to involve a certain time frame. It's it's my vibe, and I want to kind of encapsulate that in my talk. So I can't really accommodate if certain TED stages want me to do certain ways. i got to kind of do it my way, I think. And that's how I've dealt with this whole recovery is doing it my way. You know, that song by Frank Sinatra, My Way, it's like, as cringy as that is, it's kind of like how I've been doing this whole vibe. It's like, no, I'm doing it this way because this is how I think it works. And I believe with that with my whole heart. Like it's just like trust your gut, do what you do your way and do what you think works. And so the tenth stage is the main goal here, Alex. Is it hard to share your story in a certain time limit? Where sometimes TED Talks have like a certain time limit, some speaking gigs have a certain time limit. Do you feel that it's hard to condense it down into a certain amount of time? Or do you feel that it challenges you to be able to make sure that you're talking about the specifics that you want, that are important to you to share? Yeah, it's a good observation. Like it's, um, it's a different format, right? So the TED, TED talk is 18 minutes, as you know. Uh, I'll just tell different stories. I've got stories that fit the time frame. They won't go into full details like what happened, but they'll go into like three stories that I can tell you about perspective Mm-hmm. Being goal oriented and being solutions oriented that fit the time frame. I won't go into as much detail as I did with the, the medical stuff. 
as I do a normal talk, but I just kind of accommodate my talk to fit the time frame that's available. Uh, is it as dynamic and interesting? I think it's, it's it's a different kind of talk, and you can't really judge it in that perspective. But like it's, I mean, I've got good reviews so far from the talks, and I think they just kind of kind of fit it to what suits their uh, time frame. You talked about your speaking journey, but you also mentioned podcast journey. Talk about that experience for you. Yes, the podcast. Um, I've got a podcast called Play Loose, Look Tight, documenting the process of life after. What does that mean, Dan? Well, I'm glad you asked, Alex. It is about a life mantra in four words. Play loose, look tight. Play loose is the first part. I want to live my life with a joie de vivre. Enjoy life. Play is the first word by intentionality. If you can play, you make life a lot lighter and easier to like navigate and, and negotiate. Mm-hmm. Play loose is the first part. Conversely, you want to look tight. Be on time, be intentional with your dress and your performance and your and your professionalism. Um, with how you present yourself and when you show up on time, like you want to play loose, but you want to look tight. So it's a life mantra in four words. Uh, it's a resource that I wish I had when I started this brain injury. I was trying to rebuild my life. Um, any of you guests that have had difficult stuff in their life and I talk about um, my experience and my experience perspective. It's a passion project and something I could get going back up in the next few months. Speaking right now is my main priority, but that will come hopefully one day it's speaking going on a more consistent basis. It's uh, a podcast I've done seven episodes of now. I've gotten ideas for maybe a dozen more. Uh, it's not the most elegant in terms of editing and, and polish, <laughs> but it's got really good content. I mean, the second, second and not in terms of content, in terms of editing, it's not the most well-polished and put-together podcast, but it's me just kind of doing this from the hip, and it's a perspective and, and uh, a freshness to podcasting. I think you won't find very many podcasts these days. I love how you mentioned the polishing aspect, because I am guilty of that. I am so focused on the content aspect that editing, I am learning every single day. Like, I didn't go to college and learn this. I kind of Saw YouTube videos how to edit, but I I think the important thing that I enjoy and I can know that you are the same way is the information, the content, the guests are learning about other people. That is what I enjoy. Is there anything when you're learn like with a guest that you learn something about yourself where you're like, oh, I can relate to that in a way? Well, for sure. Like I've interviewed some very interesting people, like my friend Yara from London. She's Germany. She had a, a heart transplant. Her heart didn't work as properly. She had a heart transplant. And just her perspective and how she views life and just how she navigates this and and her perspective on life and what she's got now just it's really like makes you question what you're worried about and what you're really up against the wall with. And like, is it really that big of a deal? Mm-hmm. That That's really cool. And that's pretty enlightening. I think it's pretty interesting to see that and Something I mean, I've got some perspective with my experience and like you kind of realize like, you know, well, normal stuff's pretty cool these days. Like, I don't mind that. Um, normal life's pretty good when you can't, you know, when you get the ability to walk, talk and smile is taken away from your life becomes a bit more difficult. But interviewing people like that is really interesting and really, really thought provoking for me. Like, how would I engage in this situation? I also interviewed a friend of mine, uh, Brendan Finner, who lost his, his dad um, a few years back from cancer, rest in peace. And... Just hearing him navigate that acute angle really helped me understand how 
he's thought about this and how I can think about that in the future and whatnot and and learning from each other because everyone's going through something you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going through something you know nothing about. And the most difficult thing that you've been through is the most difficult thing you've been through. It's my way of saying, like, look, you can't judge when someone's up against the wall about something because it could be the most difficult thing they ever navigate in their life. But there's tears to this and there's levels to this, what can be done. And like hearing someone like Yara talk about navigating, you know, coming back from heart surgery and like what that's like. And she can't walk up hills too fast because she gets short of breath and like her, her heart can't pump that much. It's like that's some real stuff. That's some real limitations, some real stuff that she's navigating. Like, is that translate to someone who's got like a very different perspective on what their worst thing is? I mean, it's a different perspective on this, but like the worst thing that that person's been through is the worst thing that that person's been through. So it's quite interesting to see this, how much variety there can be with people and what they've been through. Something our listeners like to do is learn even more about the guests personally. When you're not working, you're not speaking, what do you like to do for fun? We talked about you like swimming, but is there anything else that you enjoy doing? Yeah, I'm big into shows and concerts. I love my music. I went to a show last week, a band called Hot Chip, which is pretty like electro funk dance. It's pretty fun. I've been to a show in in, uh, in in a few months, to be honest. It was quite good, pretty much a year. And it was funny because I have these hacks that I give in my presentation. And one of the hacks is called an icebreaker. Now, an icebreaker is like when you're walking a certain direction, you're going to walk in behind someone, let them break the ice for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in a busy city like London, like Piccadilly Circus or the Oxford Circus, it helps you save bandwidth and save battery. With the brain injury, your battery is a little bit lower. About like My battery's at 75%, and it drains much faster. But when you have an icebreaker, it takes off that initial um, um, strife and, and argument and, str- and struggle, right? In the concert... I got separated my friend friends at the start of the show. And I messed with my buddy Cody. I'm like, hey, Cody, where are you guys at? He was left side. Okay, cool. It's a packed arena, a packed theater. Um, maybe, I don't know, a couple thousand people. He's like, left side. Okay, cool. How far down? About midway down, middle. Cool. But like the show started, it's bumping, right? And it's it's like the music pounding. It's like a full-on experience. A few videos on my Instagram if you want to check it out. But I found an icebreaker, someone who's walking through the pack, and I followed him behind them. If you can find an icebreaker, that, that takes a lot of the bandwidth off of you. Like, I'm not having to, excuse me, excuse me, bump it through. But they're making the work, and I'm, I'm capitalizing on their work and getting my way through the, the, the crowd. Eventually, I managed to get my way near the front. My buddy saw me, yelled me over to come get me. And uh, I wound up having to join the show with them. But, like, that icebreaker habit and hack, like, worked in that space, too, which is pretty cool. But I was very close to like, you know what? I guess I'm not watching the show with them. I guess I'm watching the show from back here, which sucks. You're having a good time with your buddies and like it's a pretty dancey show. And you want to be with friends and they kind of in a nice environment. So I was very stoked that I like followed through with that hack and found an icebreaker and made my way to the front of the show. It was pretty good. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I'd say the biggest thing I can give you is get out of your mind and into your body. Mood follows action. Whether that be a walk, a swim, a gym, get into your body in some capacity. I guarantee you'll feel better for it. You'll get some clarity afterwards. I'm big into swimming, as you heard. 
I also walk. I also gym. I used to start out by getting an exercise by walking for one block, then two blocks, then four blocks, then six blocks, then eight blocks. You gradually ramp this up. Pick a small winnable target, land and expand. Don't try to walk for 20 blocks off the hop. Pick two blocks. And next week, do four blocks, then six blocks, then eight blocks. But you want to get into your body as best you can. And then once you do that, I think stuff starts lined up for you and you start being able to navigate this in a more thoughtful and practical way. That's the one thing I'd really recommend you do is get out of your mind and your body. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Alex, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Tune in next time here. My next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.